Okay, everybody, it is extra time. I'm Ackley Grid, the bonus show for generations talking about my sports generations. Today is Immaculate Grid Baseball Grid 123 for the 3rd of August. And I have some great, great shame today. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But let's get into the grid. In the top left-hand side, so if columns left to right, we have the San Francisco Giants. In the middle column, we have the Cincinnati Reds. And then on the right-hand side, we have 300 average batting in a season. And then when we go top to bottom on the rows, we have the Clevelands. We have the middle row of the Boston Red Sox and the bottom rookie of the year. So let's jump right into it. We've got a lot of a lot of facts for you, a lot of stats, a lot of interesting nuggets here. And then, of course, my great shame, which we will reveal. So for the Clevelands and 300 average in a season top right hand corner, we have none other than Mr. Kenny Lofton. Started out with Cleveland's become a giant was key in the 2002 playoffs against the Cardinals, but he comes in at 10%. But for those that have been listening to the show, we've been stumping for Mr. Lofton and talking about how, quite frankly, he might be the best player not in the Hall of Fame. And we might want to revise that. Maybe he's the best outfielder not in the Hall of Fame. But however, comma, we're going to give you some rundown here. And there's going to be some caveats, but we also have some things to kind of compare, do some comparison shopping with Mr. Kenny Lofton. All time, Kenny Lofton is 15th in stolen bases with 622. All time, he is 64th in runs scored with 1,528. He is. 77th in war at 68.4. So top 100. And I'm not trying to argue that Kenny Lofton is a top 10 all-time player, but top 100. Now, as of June 1st of this year, there have been 20,365 people ever to play in the major leagues. And we're saying Kenny Lofton making an argument top 100. That's pretty good. Top 100. Many of us out there would say, oh, you could go to sleep and wake up and you get to be one of the top 100 ever Major League Baseball players to play the game. Would you take that? I think. Just about anyone who's a fan of the game would absolutely jump in and say, yeah, sign me up. Where do I go? So here's some stats for you. Now, remember, war is, you know, it's a good way to do a high level first brush comparison. 
it is difficult to do war across you know eras it is difficult to use war across different positions and it's definitely difficult to, to use war to compare pitchers versus position players but it's a good start and it is something to be able to at least have a first level discussion but even under this i argue lofton should be in the hall so let's take out some caveats here these are all players that have a war career war greater than lofton's but there's a lot of caveats lots and these all these are players with a war greater than lofton's that are not in the hall of fame famously you have or infamously you have bonds clemens a rod and the book is still out to know if they're ever going to get in the hall, but all three admitted, suspected, congressional hearing, Mitchell report, whatever you want to say, steroids. Bonds infamously has the most career war by any position player of all time, 162.8. Clemens is 139.2. A-Rod 117.5. Again, Clemens is a pitcher. It's hard to compare Clemens's war against Bonds and or A-Rods. So then you have Albert Pujols, 101.5. Now Pujols, I don't think he counts, at least yet. He's not eligible. Presumably he gets in. Presumably he gets in first ballot. Then you have Trout and Verlander. Both of them are current players. Trout, you know, for sure is going to get in 85.3 already in his career. Verlander near the end of his career, 79.6. Still playing though. Just got traded. Back to Houston's. Then you have Kurt Schilling. 79.5 and with some of the you know racist homophobic whatever you want to say rhetoric that Schilling has displayed some of just the conspiracy theory kind of things that he said seems like he's getting blackballed from the hall of fame don't really want to get into that here i'm very agnostic about outside behavior versus hall of fame voting we could talk about that in another you know that's probably a better one for the big show generations talking about my sports generations but you've got kershaw and grinky still both of them are active grinky on his last leg possibly kershaw maybe has a year or two Kershaw was 79.4, Grinke was 76.8. You've got a couple of pre-1900 players, Jim McCormick and Bill Dalen, apples and oranges. Then you have the guy that, maybe he's number one, maybe he's the guy that absolutely needs to be looked at. His longtime teammate made it, and his war is lower, but Lou Whitaker, Sweet Lou, second baseman, Detroit 
Tigers, 75.1. Then you have Scherzer still playing. He just got traded. 73.7. He's going to the Texas, to the Rangers. Whew, who's Bochy? Is he going to win it again? Is he going to get his fourth? I mean, if Bruce Bochy wasn't making the Hall of Fame as a manager with three World Series wins with the Giants, if he pulls it off with the Rangers, oh, man. Then you have Paul Miro. So another guy, you know, shrouded around steroids. Then you have Bobby Gritch. We've talked about him on the big show. Bobby Gritch, second baseman with the Angels. You know, is he one of those super sneaky guys that should be in, but the teams he were on, he was on for the most part weren't that good, so you don't really think of him. And they were expansion team early on. Then Carlos Beltran. Again, not eligible just yet, but 70.1. Then you have Big Daddy, Rick Rushel, 69.5. And then Manny, Manny Ramirez at 69.3. Again, steroids, among other things, he got suspended. And then there's Lofton. So when you look at Lofton and you look at his peers during his era, across his career, there's no other outfielder that has a higher war than he does that isn't one of the aforementioned people shrouded in steroids or other that has a higher career war than Lofton. Lofton has the highest career war for outfielders during his quote-unquote era. And if you want to slide in Beltron in there, okay, we'll, we'll they have a little crossover in there. But, I mean, their, their war is almost the same. Lofton's career war is greater than the following Hall of Fame outfielders. Al Simmons. He was a longtime Philadelphia A. Hall of Famer. Goose Goslin. Washington Center, where they became the Twins. Again, you know, we're talking guys the 20s, 30s. Duke Snyder. So Duke Snyder was to the Brooklyn Dodgers of what Mays was to the Giants. Now, I'm not suggesting that Snyder's on the same level as far as career and or, you know, physical tool set or what he meant. or That's what I really mean. What he meant to the Dodgers was probably equal to what Mays meant to the Giants. But as far as career-wise, you know, not really close. But he was still a big deal. Duke Snyder in the Hall of Fame, Lofton's career wars higher than his. Andre Dawson, longtime Expo MVP with the last place Cubs. We've talked about him on the show. Higher career war than Dawson. And then lastly, at this point, you know, the, the exercise was just starting to get repetitive. Lofton has a career or higher than Richie Ashburn of the Phillies. And Ashburn might be the closest comp to Lofton. Not a whole lot of power, 
high average. Lofton had more power, stole more bases. But Kenny Lofton, he might very well be the best outfielder in Major League history, not in the Hall of Fame and not getting a whole lot of attention and not getting a whole lot of support, at least at this point. But I went with Kenny Lofton, you know, 300 average for the Clevelands. He did it multiple times. His 1994 season was probably his going, well, it is his best from an OPS perspective, but that was a strike year. So he only paid like 112 games, but he had 60 stolen bases. His average was over 340. He was leading the league in hits, 160. So he was having an amazing season in 1994. And then, of course, strike August 11th or 12th. Man, I got to go find that uh, that ticket. I had a ticket for the Giants and Padres that evening. Of course, it didn't go. Strike. So Kenny Lofton with the Cleveland's 10%. Next, we go into that middle square. Right-hand side, Boston, and 300-plus average. And I couldn't help myself. Mike Greening will. Mike Green will. 1%. Just flexing. You know, Boggs is an easy one. Manny, uh, you know, Ortiz, Pedroia. Lots of more recent guys. Lots of other guys. Yastrzemski, Ted Williams. I mean, you name it. But Greenwell was supposed to be, we talked about this on the show the other day, the left fielder to supplant Rice and to be the left fielder of the ages to follow in, you know, Ted Williams, Kari Ostromsky, Jim Rice, take over in left field. And he did for a little while. And, um, you know, I think... He's just his career started early enough to where it wasn't part of the steroids where it was prevalent and ended before it really started to kick in. So the guys that stayed a little bit longer than Greenwell, Bonds, Greenwell's, uh, you know, outfield partner, Burks, and I'm not suggesting Burks did steroids, but their careers would span into the height of the steroid era and Greenwell's finished before then. But Greenwell would be a two-time All-Star, 12 seasons. 1988, he would be MVP two. He would be third in war that year. But this is, we talked about this the other day, this is the Jose Canseco 40-40 season. And it could have been a toss-up on who you went with as far as MVP. But just the notables, we'll talk about it again. Let's just bring it up. Boggs led the league in war with 8.3. Boggs was MVP 6. Led the league in runs, 128. Walks, 125. Batting average, 366. On-base average, 476. And OPS, 
at 965. That season by Boggs is just incredible. Just incredible. I think if you have a team of eight position players and they're all Wade Boggs, yeah, you're crushing the league. Crushing the league. You know, Steve talks a lot about how the game has shifted too much to just, you know, swing it, let it ride, home runs. And he thinks that the value of the hitters being able to hit has gone down. And I vehemently disagree with that. And on the big show, he used an example um, basically saying that Max Muncy has become kind of a poster child for what GMs are looking for today. And he compared him against Bill Madlock. And I basically told him, are you crazy? Bill Madlock won four batting titles. Max Muncy has like a career average of barely over 200. I think his career average is like 220. It's like, are you crazy? I take eight Bill Madlocks over eight Max Muncy's. It's not even close. And yeah, maybe he has a little more power, but your total bases are going to be way outnumbered by a guy who actually can hit the ball. And my argument is a Max Muncy is in today's game because you're looking for value for the dollar. You're looking at total bases for the dollar. You're looking at OPS, OPS plus for the dollar. You're not necessarily saying, hey, you know, who's the better player? You're trying to find value and you're trying to get something in the margins for the dollars that you're spending. And if you're a lower, if you're a lower tier team or a lower market team where you don't have the same kind of budget, you're trying to find that value. But Hall of Famer or close to Hall of Famer and All-Star, I mean, salary be damned, you're going to take those guys over a Max Muncy. So I kind of was a little taken aback. And I, and I understood what Steve's point was, but the example that he used I thought was pretty poor. But Boggs, 1988, I mean, we talked about it the other day. I mean, that year against Canseco's 40-40, and, and it's a, it's a, you're splitting hairs at this point. Canseco had never done, you know, that no one had gone 40-40 yet. So that was the first time. But Boggs' year was just, just crazy. But then in 88, you know, you say, well, you know, what were they, what, you know, what were the, I think Red Sox finished second. So it wasn't like they were not a contending team, but, you know, of course the A's would go on to the World Series. They would lose to the Dodgers. They would finish first in the West. I think they would beat the Tigers for the pennant that year, 88. And then you have Kirby Puckett. Kirby had a war of 7.8. He was MVP three. He had a 356 average. So at that time in 1988, I believe Kirby had the highest batting average by a right-handed hitter since Joe DiMaggio. He led the league in hits with 234. And he had an incredible year. And I said this on previous shows. Again, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. 
But if you want to talk about steroids and when it started and where it started, you know, people kind of go back to Conseco. But I think it started before then. And it's possible that Kirby may have been one of the folks out in front. His first couple seasons, he only had something like 11 career home runs. He had one season three. And he was famously working out with Hawk and Animal, which were a tag team partners that were in the National Wrestling Association and what at the time was called, you know, WWF, the World Wrestling Federation. And they were wrestlers out of Minneapolis and they worked out out of Minneapolis and there were articles and interviews where Kirby was talking about after he started showing some power that he was working out with those guys. And he ended up having um cataracts and then of course he ends up dying prematurely but cataracts as it turns out and i have some family that have uh, gone through this but i had family that had to go and get steroid shots you know from for a health issue and it was under a doctor's care and it was for um for basically to ensure the growth of you know some pre preemie babies but subsequently uh, i have someone very close to me that had to have ca double cataract surgery and the doctor the first thing they asked jokingly said oh are you a heavy steroid user and it's like no what are you talking about but Yes, actually, and that is a huge side effect. So there has been some speculation surrounding Puckett, but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence around him and that steroids, you know, start right. It didn't start with Conseco, but definitely became prevalent and famous with Conseco, but Kirby's year in 1988 was also incredible. And the fact that Greenwell kind of finished second, okay, it's a little interesting. And he wouldn't come close again for the rest of his career. But I go with Greenwell, 1%, that middle left hand or right hand column. So now bottom right hand column, we go with Benito Santiago. Now, here's an interesting one. This is rookie of the year and 300 average season batting. Now, the way that I have been playing this game and the way my friend Tony has been playing this game is right. Top right hand corner, Cleveland's 300 average. The player had to have a 300 average with that particular team. But in the blog, from baseball reference and when you click on the list of players that are eligible for the different categories under rookie of the year and 300 plus average when you click on it it explicitly says for that column or that box rather the player needed to win a rookie of the year and have a 300 average but they did not have to happen in the same season well i was like hey 
Benito Santiago absolutely did it. Batted 300, had a 34-game hit streak in 1987. Remember it vividly because he and Molitor were kind of going on at the same time, and Molitor would have a 39-game hit streak. And, you know, I'm reading this. I'm like a little tweaked. Like, there's 108 players that qualify for this box, and I'm thinking that there's only, you know, maybe – 10 or 20, whatever the number is. I don't, I don't even know because it was very difficult to look up each one. You know, I'd have to look up every single rookie of the year and find the ones that had a 300 average. It's, you know, it's possible, but it takes a little while. So I'm picking Benito Santiago like, hey, man, I got this one scooped. And he comes in at 0.2%. And, you know, there's 100 and some odd folks that, that qualified. So it's a little tweaks you a little bit. Also, the game's a little fickle. Because it seems like some of the rules changed, or at least how they were categorizing things changed. We had one of the early shows, somebody used Cespedes for 100 RBI. He absolutely had 100 RBI in the same league. So he split time between Boston and Oakland, and between the two, he had exactly 100 RBI. Now, for league leaders, if you switch leagues, your RBI from one to the other doesn't cross over. But... For career and for the season, if you're in the same league, it counts, baby. And so, you know, when you want people to play the game and have fun and interact, you know, you got to be consistent. You got to make it to where it's easy for people to to play and they understand what the rules are. So, you know, I'm not griping as like oh, first world problems here, but um, you know, you just want to make it fun. We're we're talking about it. We created a whole podcast around this, so. You know, you want to keep people engaged and you want to have them, you know, feel reward. I mean, it's just a little thing, right? It's a little piece of pleasure each day to screw around and come up with some names that you forgot about for 30, 40 years and throw them down and have a little giggle and a laugh. But so I was playing the game, you know, who had a 300 and rookie of the year at the same time. Benito absolutely did. So that year. 34 game hit streak. It is the longest for a rookie and also the longest hit streak for a catcher. It is the 16th longest hit streak of all time. And at that point, Molitor and Santiago, so Molitor had 39 game hit streak that same year and Santiago with with 34, both of them would have the longest hit streak since Pete Rose. And Rose had like 44, something like that, game hit streak. So it had been a while. And that 1987 between Molitor and Santiago, those are the longest hit streaks until you had 38 from Rollins, which spanned the 2005 and 6 season. You had 35 from Luis Castillo with the Marlins with 2002, and then another uh, Philly, Chase Utley, at 35 in 2006. So, you know, during my lifetime, there's only been five guys with hit streaks of 30 or more, not including Rose. I mean, since Rose. Probably should have stated that a little bit more clearly. So just some fun facts around Santiago. Santiago would end this, you know, would finish up 
second to last year was with the Giants, I believe. So he would be on that 2002 team that lost the World Series. So let's finish off the grid and then we'll go to my greatest shame. We've got a lot of stats around my greatest shame so far in Immaculate Grid. So Giants and Cleveland's, we talked about them the other day, Corey Schneider. <laughs> oh man, those 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 early to mid 90s Giants were not good. You know, the mid the, the mid to late 80s, they were doing really well and then they just started to come apart. And then after Will left, Bonds' first few years, they weren't very good. And uh, Corey Schneider would be a giant after, you know, kind of 1987, having that year with Joe Carter and the Clevelands. He was on that team with Brooke Jacoby. We talked about him just the other day, up until Hanley Ramirez had the lowest RBI to home run total for a player with 30 or more home runs and a batting average of 300 or better. So he's on that same team with Brooke Jacoby. But he would become a giant, Corey Schneider, so got him at 0.5%. Then for the Reds and the Clevelands, coming in at 0.4%, Greg Swindell. So Greg Swindell in that 87 team won like 17, 18 games. You know, that was the turnaround of the Indians. Again, they were sad sack going back to 1954 when they lost the World Series to the Giants. We, we talked about this before. They weren't very good for a very, very, very long time. But that team and those sets of players started to turn things around, help them get the Jake. You know, they used to play at, uh, it was either Municipal or County Stadium. I can't remember what the exact name, but, you know, Jacobs Field would come around. And that's really when you had the Loftons starting to come around. You had the Mannies, the Tomies, Brian Giles, those guys that, started to turn the fortunes of the Clevelands around. They would have the 90, they'd go to the 97 World Series. Dwight Gooden would pitch for them. Oral Hershiser, Denny Martinez, CC Sabathia, of course, would come a little later. So really turned that team around. Then for the Giants and the Bostons, I mean, I could have gone a lot of different ways here, but man, we've been using Ellis Burks, it seems like every other day. So Ellis Burks, 2%. 140 some odd runs, 42 runs, 1996, 1998 with the Colorados. I mean, but Burks would be go be on that Giants team later on in the 2000s. And then 2004 World Series winner, Boston's and the Reds, Mr. Pokemon Reese. So Pokey Reese would leave the Reds, go to the Bostons, win a World Series. And I think that was it. So before we go to the square of shame, the Reds and Rookie of the Year. Now, apparently, there's some guy named Jonathan India, second baseman, won Rookie of the Year, you know, two years ago for the Reds. Who knew? I'm sure many of you did. I have no idea. Never heard of the guy until I looked it up today. Not, not, no clue. But I know who Chris Sabo is, and he absolutely won Rookie of the Year for the Reds. It would have been 88, so the year after Santiago. 
So Spaceman Sabo, because he wore those rec specs, he comes in at 9% for the Reds. And now, ladies and gentlemen, my greatest shame. Rookie of the year in Giants. And that was the first thing that I saw this morning. I'm like, oh, Giants, boom. Boom, 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 knock it out. Because normally I do the career achievements. Well, when I see Giants, you know, I can't help myself. And I'm like, rookie of the year, I go, I'm going to scoop everybody. I am going to scoop every single person that fills that square out because I'm going Chris Spire, 1972. Well, folks, Chris Spire, although a very solid shortstop, when we come back to the Giants and actually help them in the playoffs in 1987, did not win Rookie of the Year. And I just jumped at that square so fast, didn't even think twice, didn't even pause, nothing, and I missed it. And I very much know all the other Rookies of the Year, but I was trying to get super scarcity score and be all secret squirrel and i dorked it i totally dorked it so in my shame let's go through all of the giants uh rookie of the years willie mays 1951 simple right orlando cepeda 1958 Baby Bull, Willie McCovey, Stretch, 1959. Gary Matthews, 1973. So the year after I thought, for whatever reason, that Chris Beyer won Rookie of the Year. Then you have the count, John Montefusco, 1975. And then, of course, Buster Hugs. And Buster Bats for all of us, Buster Posey, 2010. No Chris Fire. I missed that square today. Dorking around. Like, what am I doing? Come on, man. You got to be better than that. But if you look at the Giants, Rookies of the Year, man, we make them count. We don't have a whole lot, but we make them count. Mays, Hall of Famer. Cepeda, Hall of Famer. McCovey, Hall of Famer. Gary Matthews, solid, solid player. One-time All-Star, 1983 NLCS MVP. So he had three home runs and eight RBI and four games against the against the Doyer, Doyer, Doyer when he was playing for the Phillies at that point in time. And then you have the count. I mean, the count, his career is kind of short, 13 seasons, but they're kind of scattered. 1975. He is a one-time All-Star, 19.9 career war, played with Giants, Atlanta, San Diego Padres, and the Yankee. But his rookie year, 6.4 war, it's the 16th highest all-time. 16th highest out of 150 total. Not bad. It's pretty solid. He had a really, really solid rookie year. Just couldn't. Couldn't really replicate it. So on this note, before we leave you for this evening, we'll just give you some Rookie of the Year facts. 
So to date, there have been 150 total rookies of the year. The award was started in 1947. It was originally named J. Louis Lewis Comiskey Memorial Award after the owner. Jackie Robinson, of course, was the first recipient of the award. And in 1987, the award would be renamed after him. The second winner of the Rookie of the Year was actually Al Dark, and he was playing with the Boston Braves, which in 53 would become the Milwaukee Braves, which in 66 would become the Atlanta Braves. And the Braves were originally named the Boston Red Sox stockings in 1871, and they are the oldest pro team in the United States. Put that in your back pocket. So if you hit that in a bar trivia, you got it and you could rock it. You could take it over. So in 1949, so 47, the award started. 48 was the second year. It was a league for the entire league was MVP. So in 49, they split it up. So both the American and the national would get an award. So there was two moving forward. So there was only one winner in 47 and 48, and then in 49 it started with two. And the initial winners of the league rookies of the year was Roy Seavers of the San Luis Browns, which in 54 would become the Baltimore Orioles. And then prior to being the Browns, they were the Milwaukee Brewers well before the Brewers that we know today. And the original National League Rookie of the Year was Don Newcomb with the Dodgers, with Brooklyn Dodgers. But my greatest shame, I'm sitting here thinking Chris Spire was a Rookie of the Year, and nah, sorry, friend, totally wrong. But that is today's grid. That is grid 123. It is Thursday, the 3rd of August. This is Extra Time Immaculate Grid. This is the bonus show of generations talking about my sports generations. I'm Jonathan. I'm having a blast. Keep interacting with the show. We're having a great time. Answer the polls, share your grids, and uh, we'll see you guys all tomorrow. Have a great one. Cheers.